Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at the bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just three euros a month. For that, you'll get regular bonus episodes, hand-picked classic interviews from our archives, as well as early access to complete chapters from friends of Shakespeare and Company, Read Ulysses. You can now sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or for users of all other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to both are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. Picasso said that it's normal for artists to copy each other. The real tragedy is when they start copying themselves. One of the striking things about Atessa Moshfegh's career to date is that she's done neither one nor the other. So just as you could never mistake Moshfegh's keen-edged prose for anyone else's, in addition, with each of her novels, from the noirish Eileen to the high comedy of My Year of Rest and Relaxation to the chilling Death in Her Hands, Moshfegh has recalibrated her voice, reoriented her perspective, and wrong-footed any reader who might come to her work with expectations beyond it being extraordinarily well-written. And so we come to Lapvona, Moshfegh's fourth novel. Unfolding in a medieval fiefdom of the same name, it's a story of struggle in a world that lends itself to symbolism, yet resists straightforward metaphor. A world in which one human wields absolute power over another, but in which all must submit to a nature that writhes and wriggles and has still not been fully stripped of its capacity for magic. A world in which God and the devil have a very real impact upon Lavonians' lives, and in which the next village feels like another world, but heaven and hell are within grasping distance. Lapvona is as fascinating as it is confounding, and I'm thrilled to be able to speak about it with Otessa Moshveg today. Otessa, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to, to have you here, and particularly to talk about this book, which, as I said at the end there, has, in the last few weeks as I've been reading it and starting to reread it, because I, I sort of, I, I felt almost that I had to go in a loop with it, because uh, it left me, as I said, both fascinated and, uh, and confounded. So the, the opportunity to, to pick your brains about it today, I think, is going to be a, a valuable one for me as a, as a reader, um, at least. Uh, can we begin with the world itself? Now, as I said, it sort of, it takes place in uh, essentially within the confines of a fiefdom, of a, a village and the the castle on the hill. And yet I kind of had a sense as a reader that if you did take us out of the village, you could take us more or less to the ends of this world and basically be able to tell us uh, tell us all about it. So would you be able to talk a little bit about how this this world, this situation came to you and how you began to flesh it out as a writer? Sure. Um It didn't come to me all at once. I can say that. I had a vague idea of the premise of the story having to do with, with who I think of as the main character, mm -hmm. which is Marek, who yeah. is an adolescent boy. Um, but the world itself didn't come until I started fleshing out the narrative. Mm -hmm. I sort of um, saw and intuited that this was a story that needed to be told in the third person mm -hmm. point of view, an omniscient narrator, so that I could move between characters and have kind of a bird's eye view mm -hmm. of the place. And so when I got to that point, 
I, I recognize that I wasn't in the same world. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I was in a different kind of world. It was a world in a time that was sort of out of time. Mm -hmm. It was in a place that was nonspecific, but extremely peculiar. And when I realized that I was in what I think is probably, you know, the late middle ages or something, Mm -hmm. I started thinking about my own ancestry. So I don't know how much this is real or this is, you know, family lore, but Mm. um, my mother's side of the family, well, my mother herself, she's from Croatia. And so her ancestors are from there. Actually, we even have some Mongolian ancestry through there because the the Mongolians came through. I mean, it's an interesting, it's an interesting spot on earth because it's sort of on the way to Europe and on the way to um, the East. Mm. Um, But what, what my mother had always told me was, you know, in moments where I expressed doubt, self doubt or panic or fear, she would say, don't forget, we come from pirates. (laughs) <laughs> and this was something that she'd say to inspire me with courage, you know, yeah. and that we that I could get through anything. And I believe it's true for my family. I mean, my mom's family, they're really tough people. Um, so I was thinking, guys, is it really true that I come from pirates? <laughs> and, you know, I looked up, you know, piracy on the Adriatic and and found a little bit of information which led me to a Croatian professor of Serbo-Croatian history, who was, I think, living in Australia. And he had written a book all about maritime life <laughs> on the Adriatic during the Middle Ages. And I just, I, I, I couldn't find the book. I asked him if he would share the PDF, and he did. And um, that was kind of my way into the research. Mm-hmm. There, I, I wanted to, I wanted to sort of evoke a land that was adjacent to the waters of my own bloodline um, and imagined these people living in a, what I thought vaguely Eastern European fiefdom mm-hmm. under the most extreme conditions I could imagine. Mm-hmm. And um, I imagined, again, from the bird's eye view, the landscape. I did research about, you know, what kind of trees are there? What sort of wild animals? What what sort of crops did they grow? Um, what would the manor have looked like? Where would the servants have slept? Mm. Um, you know, what was trade like? And that kind of, you know, is a little bit just stimulated my imagination to an extent that I became sort of a fictional historian of my own Uh invention. (laughs) And, you know, I came up with names of distant lands and places where, you know, other people had immigrated from to Lapvona. And and yeah, so a world was built. And then Mm. I just lived there (laughs) And, um, (laughs) and felt very much at home. So uh-huh. that was fun. And, I, yeah. and, you know, it was especially enjoyable to write this. Well, first of all, because of what I mentioned about taking this new point of view in the third mm-hmm. person, which is something I'd never done in a novel. 
but also that I was I started drafting this book during COVID lockdown. Uh-huh. So it was sort of um, an imaginative escape into another land mm. and and also a way to process and express through art something that I had been feeling and thinking about in a completely new way, which was this uh, a deeper compassion for humankind mm-hmm. in a global perspective. The bandits came again on Easter. This time they slaughtered two men, three women, and two small children. Some smelting tools were stolen from the blacksmith, but no gold or silver as there was none. One of the bandits was injured by an axe wielded by the slain children's mother. She smashed his left foot. Then he was restrained by neighbors and dragged to the village square, where he was beaten and put in the pillory. Villagers pelted him with mud and animal excrement until nightfall. Grigor, the dead children's grandfather, was too bereft to sleep. So he got up in the night, went to the square, cut off the bandit's ear with a garden knife, and flung it in a lemon tree laden with blossoms. For the birds to eat, he yelled at the bleeding man and sobbed as he slunk away. Nobody could say what specific acts of horror this one pilloried bandit had committed. The rest of the bandits got away and took with them six geese, four goats, six wheels of cheese, and a cask of honey in addition to the iron tools. No lambs were stolen, as the lamb herder, Jude, lived in a pasture several miles from the center of the village, and he had his lambs penned and sleeping soundly that night as usual. The pasture was at the foot of a hill, on top of which sat the large stone manor where Viliam, Lapvona's lord and governor, resided. His guards were in position to defend him should any menacing individual ever climb the hill. Between the echoing screams from the village, Jude thought he could hear the gut strings of the guards' bows tighten from where he lay awake by the fire that night. It was not by chance that Jude and his son, Marek, lived in the pasture below the manor. Viliam and Jude shared a blood relation, their great-grandfather. Jude thought of Viliam as his cousin, though the two men had never met. On Monday, Marek, aged 13, walked to the village to assist the men in digging a trench to bury the dead. He wanted to be helpful, but cowered when the bodies were laid out on the thick grass of the cemetery and the men took up their shovels. The heads of the dead were covered only in thin cloths. Marek imagined that their faces were still alive. He could see their eyelashes grazing the fabric as a soft wind blew. He saw the outlines of their lips and thought they were moving speaking to him, warning him to get away. The children's bodies looked like wooden dolls, stiff and adorable. Marek crossed himself and retreated back to the road. The men of the village dug the trench easily without him anyway. He was like a stray dog that wandered in and out of the village from time to time, and everyone knew he was a bastard. Marek was a small boy and had grown crookedly, his spine twisted in the middle, 
so that the right side of his rib cage protruded from his torso, which caused his arm to find its only comfort resting half-bent across his belly. His left arm hung loose from its socket. His legs were bowed. His head was also misshapen, although he hid his skull under a tattered knit hat and bright red hair that had never once been brushed or cut. His father, whose long, uncut hair was brown, admonished vanity as a cardinal sin. There were no mirrors in their humble home in the pasture, not that they had any earnings to afford one. Jude was the oldest bachelor in Lapvona. Other men took their young cousins as their wives if they needed one, women often died in childbirth, or traded a few sheep or pigs to a village in the north for a tall girl to marry. Jude could never bear to see his reflection, not even in the clear icy stream that ran through the valley or in the lake where he went to bathe a few times a year. He also believed that Marek ought not see himself. He was glad to have a son and not a daughter, whose lack of beauty would be much more injurious. Marek was ugly and fragile, not at all like Jude, whose bones and muscles were like polished bluffs beaten by an ocean, soft and luminous, despite his skin being grimy and often covered in lamb shit. Jude never let on that Marek's face had an unseemly disproportion. The boy's forehead was high and veiny, his nose bulbous and skewed, his cheeks flat and pale, his lips thin, his chin a stub giving way to a neck that was wrinkled and soft, like a drape of skin over his throat, which was flabby at the apple. Beauty is the devil's shade, Jude said. So much I'd like to unpick from what you just said. I'd like to stick with this idea of um, it sort of being some way rooted in, in family law as well, because I think that's something that a feeling that we get uh, very strongly is that sort of at once a sort of a, a sort of fictitious world, like there's lots of things which happen, which, you know, have an edge of magic to them or, or things like that, which in one sense people could say, oh, well, that clearly couldn't happen. And yet we all know from our family stories that these are the kind of tales that get passed down and maybe, you know, regardless of whatever the, the facts of the situation were, they have a certain uh, a sort of power and a certain strangeness and a certain, I guess, rootedness in the way that we we understand ourselves. True. I mean, it makes me think of the, the thing that is the very cheesy, maybe cliche, which is it, it, it took so many miracles for me to get here. Right. You know, yeah, yeah. so many coincidences and strokes of good luck, bad luck, disasters, um, you know, gifts and yeah, you know, catching the next train, whatever. Mm. Um, I think about that a lot about my own family history. Um, and I mean, I think it's true for every every single person. But like, for example, um my family, my my parents met in Belgium. They had mm -hmm. my older sister, and then they moved to Iran. Uh -huh. um, my sister was born in 1976, so you can imagine okay. the wow. situation okay. <laughs> in the late 70s yeah. in Tehran. Mm -hmm. And um, they caught, you know, everyone knows there was a revolution. It was very dangerous, and they had to leave. Um like a lot of other people, and they mm -hmm. caught 
the last plane mm. before they closed the border. I mean, even just that, you know, sh- what if they had shown up five minutes late? Yeah. I probably wouldn't have existed, you know? <laughs> just, I mean, me specifically, you know? Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there are so many things like that. Yeah, there's sort of there's a sort of feeling which once you get into it just leaves you feeling almost nauseous with the uh, <laughs> the fragility of of one's own existence, I guess. Yeah, and I think that in Labrona, I mean, the fragility of existence mm-hmm. was very important. Um, I mean, it was definitely something on my mind because of the pandemic, and yeah, and something that I felt necessary to bring to each one of my characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll come on to the, the characters in a moment, um, obviously, particularly Marek. But um, the one, one thing that uh, I was having a conversation earlier with one of our booksellers who curates our antiquity section, uh, sort of the, you know, the Greek myths and legends. And one thing she said about why it appealed to her was that there's something both recognizable in the, the character, the, the gods or the heroes, urges and psychologies, but also a deep strangeness associated to it and she liked that kind of these two sitting alongside each other and when she said that I realized that was a feeling that I had about Lapfona that I'd been trying to articulate that a lot of these characters are very recognizable to us as 21st century westerners I guess and yet there's also things that drive them particularly I guess their their religious urges but also their connection to to nature and magic that feel deeply, deeply strange. And I'm curious to know as a, as a writer, as a sort of, even though, as you say, it's written from a third person perspective, so you didn't have to perhaps completely inhabit the characters in the way you might have done if you were writing from a first person perspective, but still thinking yourself into that sort of, um, that sort of mindset, was it, was it a challenge? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think I, I think anyone who isn't me is strange. You know, I think it's just like the the general way we regard others is like, well, I'm me. And if you're not me, you're different. And I'm not a mind reader, you know, or a god. So I imagine that you're, you know, we must be very different. Um, And that seems in life experience, just as being a vaguely social person, that I am almost always surprised by who people really are, uh-huh. you know, and that, and you don't really see that until you get to know someone extremely intimately. Mm. Um, the, the performance of personality yeah. is, is so profoundly important in how we think of people. And, you know, most people, I just see them, for who they present to be rather than who they really are. Mm-hmm. And as a writer, I think it's crucial for me if I want to write anything with a meaning that I need to think about who people really are, mm-hmm. not just how they act or what they look like. Those are all very important details that I try to extract and see as decisions Mm -hmm. that that person's true self has made about how they want to present themselves so who people really are is always really strange Mm. and um i i think i mean and and maybe in on 
you know, one step deeper, we're all exactly the same. But for the purposes of fiction, um, you know, I'm differentiating souls here. So, yeah, uh, yeah the unexpected is, is when things get exciting, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, for example, in the, the way that they, um, they interact with their idea of God, for example, um, was something which was quite striking early on and, and sort of persists through the book is this sort of this sense of both the very real um, influence and impact both God and the devil, the villagers believe can have on their on their everyday lives and how and how that affects their actions. And also alongside that, the the very real sort of nearness of kind of heaven and hell as well, almost as I, as I said in the introduction, almost as if they are more accessible than the next village uh, along from uh, from Lapona. I mean, that to me came as a kind of a very sort of an, almost kind of an alien sensation that I had to to try and kind of lock my my psyche into. Um, but so, so I guess are you saying that that sort of like that almost didn't strike you as particularly a strange kind of way to apprehend the world because of the, the sort of the infinite strangeness of us all, I guess. I hadn't never really written characters that had religious belief mm. before. I think I'd written some characters with faith that was peculiar to them, mm-hmm. um, but a shared faith in a community mm. was new and in order to, yeah, define these people, um, I, you know, I didn't want to write a book about, I didn't want to write a book about characters who were conformists, who had all the same feelings and exactly the same belief system. And it also, you know, it's like, if, if I'm going to explore the theme of religion, it seemed important to also allow for the variations of inter- interpretation. Mm-hmm. Religion being a constructed belief system um, based on something which is inherently true, I think, that there is some greater design at work mm-hmm. and uh, how we choose to interpret that and what names we choose to call that. Um, those are all, you know at the same time very personal and have everything to do with where we come from Mm -hmm. um so in lapvona it was important for me that this was something that that religion was being called into question especially because it was a time in lapvona where faith was being tested Mm. it's being tested by uh the exploit of power Mm-hmm. of uh, the Lord of Lapona, William. It's being tested by the personal experience that Marek has growing up uh, deformed and unloved mm-hmm. and um, having you know, a mother who died in childbirth or so he thinks. Um, it's being tested because there's an incredible environmental disaster that puts everyone's life at risk and kills many people and mm-hmm you know, forces them to sin in ways in order to survive. 
Um, and there's also the issue of how religious concepts are communicated in a time where the written word is not accessible to everyone. Um, I invented this character of the the priest, Father Barnabas, (laughs) who um, is not only miseducated, but really, truly an imposter. Uh Um, He misinforms people. He's uh, deliberately manipulating them Mm -hmm. um, in order to act in accordance to Lord William's wishes He's hearing their confessions and reporting back to the Lord. He's he's a government official. He's a politician, basically. Um, And so that complicates things a little bit. (laughs) And then there's also, you know, the fact that Marek, my protagonist, and his father are sort of outliers in this society. Mm. They don't go to church. What what they know, the stories of God and holidays and, and Jesus Christ, have been passed down through generations of lamb herding, Mm -hmm. outlying people who, you know, never heard it straight from the source, not like anyone else really did. Um, And so have this very strange or, you know, unusual belief system. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, uh, Jude, Mark's dad, has a theory about, how to get to heaven and hell. And I mean, it's yes. like a, about, uh, you know, faith, having faith and being self-abusive and unleashing the evil through uh, self-flagellation and things mm-hmm. like that. And when you die and you are buried in the ground, your body will disappear mm-hmm. if you are, if, you, if you've gone to heaven but if you if your body stays to rot, it means that you're still you're you're in hell, mm-hmm. and so that you know that belief became a very important detail in how Marek then went on to interpret the events mm-hmm. um, in the story that I'm telling. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Marek more because I mean you've ta- you've described him as your like your main character and your protagonist and when I was writing my notes I originally just sort of put in brackets hero and then just as the book went on realized that the word hero doesn't really <laughs> doesn't really fit with Marek he's not he's not a hero he's not an anti-hero I kind of I settled on sort of unhero or non-hero <laughs> because he's sort of there's um because he he goes he goes on a on a on a spiritual journey I guess but it's certainly not uh, one that people might uh, might expect or or predict uh, but when we first meet him um, he is well in fact I think the very first scene we meet him he's doing something quite odd there's there's, there's been a kind of a raid of, of uh, bandits and there's a, a bandit who has been uh, mortally wounded and uh, and Marek kisses the bandit in some sort of uh well how would you describe it a kind of a kind of uh slightly sort of twisted religious urge in some way to sort of to to demonstrate his piety is that is that yeah i would say that's that's exactly right yeah yeah and so and so so we we meet mark and you just described his father's um approach to religion and again that's been kind of handed down to Marek there's a moment where you um 
you write that he he lived for hardship. And to begin with, I, I, I found Marek a very, very hard character to read, actually, the way he just sort of walks towards uh, to suffering and to and to violence and to to abuse in a way that. Uh, yeah, in a way that I think as a reader is quite is quite hard to kind of kind of to to take on and yet and then so we might expect the you know his journey to be perhaps away from that but in fact one thing that it, it strikes me about his character and I'm, I'm trying to sort of talk around what happens uh to Marek is almost like the once these the these seeds are sown once his sort of personality is forged even though his circumstances change the core of Marek remains the same mm-hmm mm-hmm I mean, yeah, he's, he's a person who I think is very detached from a lot from life. Mm -hmm. He believes so fully in heaven um, and hell that, you know, I think, you know, he says at one point, like his greatest wish was just to go to heaven and be with his dead parents Mm -hmm. when he believe when he thinks that both of his parents have died or, you know, go to heaven to be with his dead mother um so that detachment from you know the mundane reality i think allows for him to be quite transgressive mm-hmm. you know um he does certain things that we would never do <laughs> you don't anyway yeah i mean no i mean i know some of them but some of us uh, would do them <laughs> um please seek professional help but yeah i'm not i'm not quite sure if i've answered the question uh, i think in fairness i'm not sure i actually asked a question okay. <laughs> um and then you've you've talked about barnabas and you've mentioned william so william is the the lord of the um of the of the manor the you know the 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 lord of the of the fiefdom that rules over lapona and one thing that struck me when uh i first was reading william and the presence of father barnabas and their interaction with each other was almost this what felt like a sort of an injection of modernity into the book in as much as like there was something about their characters which felt uh in some way lifted out of this kind of the the medieval mud or where we find uh where we find like Marek and Jude and Eno who are coming on to speak about. And I wondered if that was in some way connected to the power that they wield and the way in which they wield it, whether there's a kind of, whether there's a certain, whether it's not modern, a, a modernness, but a certain knowingness perhaps that, that they have that the other, the other people of Lafona are deprived of. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the the thing about William is he's so privileged. He's mm-hmm. privileged to a point of delusion mm-hmm. where he he really believes that um, his insights and his emotions are are worthy of fact. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I don't think it's because 
he is so, you know, furiously capable as a leader that, you know, um, it, it, it isn't the fortitude of his authority mm-hmm. that is creating that delusion. I really think it's the world that the reality that get gets built around someone when their power is so extreme. Mm-hmm. No one can tell them no. So that the reality that is reflected back to them seems to be of their own design. Mm. And um, I mean, you, we could look at, you know, how celebrity functions and sure. why the people who, you know, with that kind of fame go crazy. Yeah. Um, and we can look at how, um, you know, the ego run wild in in the form of a politician can mm-hmm. create a movement of mass delusion mm-hmm. and and so i was interested in that i was interested in the story that such a person would tell himself mm-hmm. in order to rationalize just how fucked up everything has been uh. That's interesting. That's because my 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 feeling with um with Lillian was that there was a um, I don't know a kind of a, a clear a, a certain clear sightedness in a way that sort of he he knew certain things so so um for, without giving too much away there's this moment like he is sort of hoarding water at a moment so when the the, the people of the village are are suffering from from drought. Uh, from a terrible drought, he has this kind of reservoir that he has in some way sort of collected and is and is using for his for his leisure rather than uh, pure survival. And yet, alongside that, there is um, a moment where there you know there 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 is what might be called an act of God, and he sort of accepts that also as part of his part of his juice. And there's kind of a knowingness about about what he's doing and how he's manipulating the people, but also, as you say, a sort of a uh, assuredness about his position in the world and the sort of his the correctness of himself being at the the top of this hierarchy. Yeah. Yeah. Where it got really interesting for me as the author was when he could see that that hierarchy uh, might topple. Mm. And there was no one on earth who could do it but the son of god uh-huh. <laughs> to unseat <laughs> william from his you know throne mm. so yeah it was a and you know also interesting to me was how frail he was how sensitive mm-hmm. how much he cared um you know even what his servants thought of him yeah yeah, yeah. um i don't know there was something that felt very true about that mm-hmm. um or at least it resonated as true for me. Um, yeah. But also how sort of oddly bored he seems at times with his with his privilege. I mean, he's sort of, uh, there's a moment you describe him as a, as a glutton eating for, for an entire family. And there's this kind of constant kind of consumption 
but of of food, but also sort of of, of entertainment and things, but never a sense of any sort of uh, that he's transported by any of it. It's almost like he almost like I, mean, I suppose he might be an, a sort of an addict to excess in a way. Like he doesn't he he needs all of this just to maintain his basic uh, yeah basic sense of feeling all right <laughs> about himself. Right. Yeah, no, he he's uh, his appetite is unquenchable, and you're right. I think he he does sort of that aspect of himself does make him seem like an addict. He's always mm-hmm. hungry. He always needs to distract himself from himself. He uh, seems to need to up his game a lot. You know, like what what was entertaining yesterday is is not as entertaining today. Mm-hmm. And he definitely, over the co- course of the book, I think, you know, first resorts to some depravity mm-hmm. and then to uh, w- what I think is something like self-sabotage uh-huh. in, in an effort to feel anything but the way that he's feeling, mm-hmm. which is, you know, I think why people use drugs and you know, have sex all the time and <laughs> things like that. There's, um, in, in introduction, I said that like, it's a book, when, it, when we come across a, a world, sort of a fictional world that sort of seems quite sort of filled with at least potential for sort of symbols and and metaphor. And you said yourself that it was kind of written during the the first lockdown and in sort of a response to an understanding of the world that you were coming to. Um the temptation is always, as a reader, I guess, to say, to see if we can draw parallels between, for example, people in the book and, you know, people in, in real life. So, you know, this was probably the most banal one to draw. But one might say, OK, this kind of crazed, uh, excessive ruler, you know, this was written clearly in the dying days of the Trump presidency. You know, was there was that something you sort of resist as a writer to sort of be- to uh to to tack too close to these kind of uh figures in the news whether that be uh people like trump whether that be the excesses of sort of celebrities or politicians or do you find them sort of useful grist for for characters like william well both really um I definitely didn't want to distract people too much by thoughts of Trump when they were uh. reading about, <laughs> you know, the parts of the book in which uh, William appears. Mm-hmm. But I also thought, you know, we have all had the experience of watching this man make decisions on our behalf, mm-hmm. which are obviously completely self-serving. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's not the first time in the history of humankind that that's (laughs) happened, but it, but it, but it was so public and so, um, it was so public and perceived so differently Mm. that it divided the country. Yeah. Um, in, in more, in more ways than one. Um, so. So no, I don't, I did not want to, I wanted to resist certain cliches, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, but I also didn't feel like it was something I wanted to resist too much because Uh there was some real 
power in that, you know? I mean, we've all, we all know what that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when, when I guess when you do see those kind of actions and those kind of urges set in a different context, in a sense, like suddenly you, you sort of see the, the ridiculousness of them in a way yeah. like um and in fact that just puts me in mind there is a moment where um uh one of your one of your characters uh grigor um hears um a story about there's someone talking about the devil and suddenly has this sense of kind of almost like the the veil is pulled from his eyes and he can see and he can see things clearly and i guess yeah. in a sense this kind of this kind of story taking those kind of things which we've all been subjected to in various ways over the past five years and as you say probably sort of generationally back through uh, through history to sort of just put them in a different setting can can clarify certain things i suppose yeah i mean i think the i you know grigor is maybe my mm, i have a lot of favorite characters but i have a real <laughs> soft spot for Grigor um, because he's the one who has a real awakening mm-hmm. and you know possibly the oh, I don't I was gonna say the only one but I'm <laughs> certainly he has the most intense awakening I think of all yeah of yeah and I think in some ways maybe he is the most contemporary character mm-hmm. in that he's he is you know pulling the curtain back and looking at society his community and like reality in general mm-hmm. um as having stripped away everything he's been told to think mm-hmm. and seeing it now for what it really is and that puts him in such a vulnerable position you know um so i felt so tender toward him mm-hmm. and i really like was hoping for the best for him yeah you know um i mean he seems yeah mm-hmm. that's a really interesting reflection that sort of that in some way that that insight and sort of yes yeah, sort of reflection and, and and understanding makes you can make you more vulnerable than rather than give you more power in a way right yeah, yeah. i mean i think um you know just moving into talking about ina Yes. Um, who is this sort of mystical creature in the novel. She's over 100 years old, has survived a plague, lived in the wilderness, uh, it was blinded by her illness, and um, was sort of astonished to find out that her body was, had held a miracle, which was mm-hmm. that she could produce breast milk and if she drank it her vision was restored and this Mm. was sort of the the thing that had her come back down from the wilds back into lapvona and become a wet nurse Mm -hmm. and a doctor really because she had learned so much from living in nature that she she had a sort of paranormal understanding of uh the the birds and the flowers Mm. and the herbs and the plants and the air and um and so came to know the people of lapvona in a way that that, you know other that intimacy didn't exist in other Mm. relationships 
um, having, you know, fed babies and birth, like birthed babies or is that what you call it? Birthed babies? No, mother birthed yeah. babies. Uh, having fed the babies mm. and, um, you know, saved people's lives. And she's sort of a, she isn't only good, however, she, she is, mm. you know, it's, it's, she, she has a complicated interior that I don't know if we ever fully understand how, like the, the uh. breakdown there. Um, because she, yeah. she her, her psychology is a, is also a little bit supernatural. Yes. She <clears throat> she's a believer, and yet she is a mystic of mm. the natural world, and has power has a supernatural power almost, mm-hmm. um, which you'd think was kind of heretical, uh-huh. but. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so so I, I really wanted to get Grigor and Ina together because uh-huh. I felt like they would have an interesting conversation. Hmm. The conversation between someone whose eyes have just opened to the truth and the eyes of someone who... <laughs> Eyes are a very important symbol yes. in this book. And the, and the eyes of someone who was blinded by the truth mm-hmm. and then um, came to know it more deeply through the manipulation of nature. Yes. And that conversation, I mean, basically the first time that they have a real conversation, they get stoned together. Uh-huh. <laughs> and... And it's kind of like, I don't know. I mean, there were, there, that, that also felt like a very contemporary moment, mm. like two minds sort of meeting in this other dimension. Yes. And it being weirdly romantic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's a weird thing with Ina. It's that she kind of, um, again, without wanting to say too much, her sort of, the change that overcomes her is one of sort of, I mean, it's not quite a reversal of time, but there's something like she becomes almost more of a sort of a fleshed out uh, cat person with agency and a future by the end of the book yeah. than, she is, than she is at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's true. Uh, you, you see her kind of, it begins status quo, and mm. then she's reduced to almost nothing. Yeah, physically, and then as she's built back up, she is replaced. She's she's replaced parts of her body, and mm-hmm. she almost seems to reverse time, mm. um, and become you know the woman she always dreamed of becoming. Uh-huh. It's it's funny because um, one of the 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 words I, I noted down connected to. All, sort of all of the characters and the kind of the situation so they find themselves in. But I've just realized after what you've been saying that this Ina is maybe an exception to this. It's a, I wrote down the word fragility and it's sort of some of them, uh, I think, recognize the fragility of life from the very beginning and are not sort of disabused of that, <laughs> that notion. Others like William kind of have to learn 
the fragility of life and existence uh, in a quite a sort of a hard one <laughs> way. And yet I've just, yeah, I've come to realize that Ina is in a sense not fragile mm-hmm. in the same way, sort of physically or spiritually as perhaps all of the other characters in the book. Yeah, I totally agree. But on, on that on that fragility, is that sort of, I guess, one of the when you were talking about the sort of the the realizations you that you were coming to as you were preparing to write the book, um, and about you know you you said about that sense of your uh, you you know the the chance of you becoming you was so you existing at all was so was so small. Is that sort of in a sense one of the underlying realizations of this novel is the sort of the yeah the fact that everything could <laughs> could turn on a on a you know in a second in a way I think so I think it's also um you know a story about fate mm-hmm. and and the story of the story of fate right, I mean exactly. you know as a something that you can predict okay that's tricky but fate is always perfect in hindsight Mm -hmm. it really depends on where you start and end a story Mm. so um you know i i believe in fate to an extent and where i believe in fate the most is in the act of writing in the act of (laughs) of creating um and i think because i was writing the book in in I don't know exactly how to explain it, but it was coming from a very pure place. Mm -hmm. It wasn't coming from, oh, experiences I've had in my life that I can't let go of, Mm -hmm. you know, my preoccupations with my own faults and hurts Mm -hmm. and my fantasies. It, it, It seemed to be coming from like a more ancestrally Mm. handed down imagination and I don't know maybe that's bullshit but that's just (laughs) it it had it had a purity to it that 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 felt easy Mm -hmm. it felt easy to write about these things that were so difficult because I was allowing them the the track to I, I was allowing them to just follow one after another on the track toward what felt like a certain fate of wholeness of story. Mm. I didn't know the ending, but I knew the ending was going to be the completion of something. It was going to be a full revolution. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, and I think intuitively I knew that when I started the, the first section spring, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's spring, and the last section, spring again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's really it's really interesting. It's um, at the moment we've been doing uh, a lot of things at the bookstore um, connected to to Ulysses because it's a centenary of uh, of publication, and of course the the action in Ulysses takes place over like the cycle of one day. And uh, and Finnegan's Wake, you know, the, the following novel, this, the last sentence becomes the first sentence again, and there's this sort of this idea of of, of cycles, and it's 
I don't know. In in a sense, like you know, when people talk about the sort of the mechanics of storytelling, um, the cycle is not really ever evoked. It's sort of the the arc is evoked mm. uh, in the sort of you know in the the third act, you know, the three act structure, and yet. I've been thinking and sort of when reading Lapvona, this thought came back to me, was this idea of sort of, I think as life goes on and as you get older, it does take on a more cyclical feeling than, uh, you know, a, what might be described as a kind of uh, a classical sort of hero's journey or something like that. And so I think that was sort of something that really resonated with me in um, in Lapvona was that, yeah, that underlying sense of, even like once we leave behind Marek and, you know, we're not going to obviously talk about what he does at the end of the book, but um, that there's sort of, there is this cycle that's going to be continuing without us and without him. It's right. sort of, yeah, it's quite, quite, quite a, quite a, quite a profound feeling. Um, was that, that sense that you had while writing, was that new to you compared to your previous novels? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. In my previous novels, I was only concerned with the, world of the character in that moment for the mm. story i mean there could be reflections on the past there could be you know imaginations of other other things in the future but because i was writing in such close first person i mean mm. i'm essentially writing a monologue mm. um which is you know, and I and I think that's an apt term because a monologue is it, it has to do with the performance, right? You know, um, and so it's happening in real time, so to speak. And um, there, the there, there might be a moment in Eileen or in my year of rest and relaxation where there's a sense that the world is going on and it has gone on before me and it will continue mm -hmm. to go, go on after me. But that's not the primary concern. Right. The yeah. primary concern is me and what's happening to me and what mm -hmm. I'm doing. Mm. That's interesting. Because as I said, and I mentioned in the introduction, one of the things that for you that marks you apart from almost any other writer I can think of is how starkly different each of your books up to up to Lafona felt from each other um like really uh a sense of sort of you know the the new <laughs> the new Moshfeg would come in you're like I don't know what this is going to do <laughs> and that is always like as a both as a reader and as a bookseller that's always a very sort of exciting thing and knowing that with Lafona for you it feels like again like a page has turned uh the sort of I find that quite, as I say, as, a, as, a, as an admirer of your work, quite exciting as to, as to what, might, uh, what might come next. Thank you. <laughs> um, that is, unfortunately, all we've got time for. I could go on talking about this, this book for, for hours, but, um, uh, you know, you've got to get on with your day. It is, uh, our listeners should know that you, we started this interview at 8 a.m. in the morning uh, for you, and I'm very, very grateful that you joined us. Um, I'm happy to is of course available from uh shakespeare and company from our uh, bricks and mortar store also from our website or from your local independent store wherever wherever you get your books um all that remains for me to say is Otessa Moshevek, thank you so much for joining us today it's my pleasure thank you for listening to the shakespeare and company podcast 
If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app, or just by sending the link to some of your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening. <laughs>